Hello, Freedom Fighters. Thank you for listening. This audio interview is brought to you by Open World Magazine, the ultimate guide for pursuing a life of adventure and passion and setting up a location-independent business that can support your dream lifestyle. Go check us out at openworldmag.com. Go check out the new manifesto on lifestyle design, authored by yours truly, Buy Your Own Island, now available on Amazon. It's been called inspiring and empowering and one of the best new books on entrepreneurship. Lifestyle design for 2015 and beyond. Look for it on Amazon or go download the audiobook for free at buyyourownisland.com forward slash audio dash book. Hey, so welcome to episode 31. For the month of March, I've been traveling continuously, but keeping the podcast going at the same time, all part of the location-independent digital nomad lifestyle. This interview was recorded from the Cameron Highlands in Malaysia at the town Starbucks. I apologize in advance for any background noise during the interview. There were uh, some kids <laughs> running around and uh, the occasional background music. Despite that, this interview was a great discussion between two experienced digital nomads who have been around the block a few times, and I think anyone can take a lot of value from this episode. So without any further ado, enjoy this episode 31 for the Open World Podcast with Grant Worley. All right, so I'm excited to have my friend and fellow world-romping digital nomad Grant Worley on the show. Just want to welcome you, Grant. Thanks for having me on, Danny. Grant is the author of the new book, Break the System, Escape the Rat Race, Start a Business, and Travel the World, and I'm really excited to pick his brain. He's also a traveling consultant who uh, makes his money through teaching products through platforms like Udemy, and uh, how how long has it been since you've started your uh, digital nomad journey, Grant? I'd say it's been maybe two years and a couple months, something along those lines. Two years and a cup and a, a bit of change. So, yeah, I was looking through your story and introduction of your book, and I think it's fascinating. You just sold all of your stuff and decided to move to Asia. What prompted this uh, life move? Yeah, so it was actually something I was kind of working towards for a while, and uh, I was kind of looking for some kind of transition point for for the actual travel thing. So I was trying to do the self-employed entrepreneur route. Um, and it had been maybe a little bit under a year at that point. Uh, but then I was looking to, you know, the ultimate goal was to travel while, while being self-employed and owning my own business. So I was looking for something to, to ease the transition to the traveling business owner situation. So I actually got an opportunity to work part-time for a resort in the Philippines. And um, it was like the, the deal was, you know, about two hours a day of marketing for the resort in exchange for free accommodation and food, and the rest of the time you're supposed to work on your business. So it was actually geared for people trying to do this kind of thing. So there was actually a very short turnaround time on like, okay, you got it. Um, you should be here within you know a couple weeks or whatever. So I had you know I had an apartment at the time and um, didn't have a whole lot in my bank account because I'd been trying to hustle and, and start a business. Uh, and so I just <laughs> it was very much one of those. Um, this is exciting, but also kind of freak out to to pick up and move across the world uh, with very short notice. But I haven't haven't regretted it at all since, though. So did you find that opportunity through the Tropical MBA? Uh, It's like an apprenticeship-type program? 
Yeah, yeah. They okay. they had people rotate through about every six months. It was through Tropical MBA, yes. Okay, and so you did that for about six months? Correct. Okay, and how do people find opportunities like that? Because I think it's, it's quite curious, and I think it's a great way to uh, break out and, and get out of your comfort zone and, and kind of have a soft landing at the same time. Yeah, exactly. I, I actually filmed a uh, little sort of promo for, for that uh, position uh, when I was transitioning out of that for the, for the next round of applicants or whatever. And that's exactly how I described it. It's really ideal for uh, people who are trying to do this kind of thing, but they don't want to just sort of pick up and like end up in some random hostel in, in Asia or something like that. Cause that's a lot more difficult to, uh, starting a business, especially for the first time is very difficult, uh, even as it is, um, in a normal living situation. But you throw in the sort of like tumultuous nature of travel in there as well. And it becomes that much harder. So, uh, having some kind of, um, safety net, I guess, if you will, like, for example, I didn't have a lot of living expenses. I didn't have to worry about my accommodation or, or, or things like that. It was just, it made things a lot easier and simplified so I could focus on, on the business side of things. So, um, yeah, the way I found about that was just uh, literally just following that blog. And there's, there's a lot of location independent type blogs and, and resources. And a lot of them do, uh, when they hear about these types of opportunities, they do push it out across their listservs or podcasts or what have you. Um, there's another guy who regularly uh, pushes that pushes, pushes these kinds of opportunity out on his listserv. Uh, Travis Jamison uh, is an SEO company. I'm blanking on the name, but I, I just remember I used to be on his listserv as well, and he also periodically supremacy does SEO. like. It's, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, supremacy SEO. I know. Grant, I know Travis. Um, so you're say, basic, saying basically just sign up for some of these blogs and uh, get plugged into this digital nomad community, and these opportunities often present themselves. Yeah, that, that's a one very solid approach. Um, I mean, even within the, the forum type communities as well, like just seek, I mean, there's, there's the sort of passive approach, like waiting for an opportunity to be sent out across a blog or, or something you follow. Um, and that's, that's nice, right? If that happens or if you get it, but, um, you know, not everybody's not, not everybody's gonna be that lucky that they find that it applies to them and then they actually get it. So, um, there's also the more proactive way which is to to create that kind of opportunity for yourself, whether that's arranging something manually with, like if you want to do something similar to what I did, manually arranging something with a resort uh, in a place that you want to travel to or finding other entrepreneurs who travel and maybe signing on with them for some kind of tempor- temporary six-month position or something like that just to really help you get established. Um, that's right. the, probably the more proactive way that's probably more generally applicable rather than just waiting for an opportunity. And by doing that, you kind of have a parachute uh, when you change locations and you don't know anyone and you're not wor- you're not sure if you're going to be able to survive basically at least you can have uh, a runway basically yes. is what you gave yourself exactly exactly yeah I did the exact same thing when I when I started to travel I went to Mexico for two months and I just worked out some trade for a website like that and I got a free place and because I was I don't know what it was that was holding me back but I, I always felt like the wheels might come off you know, if I yes. if I suddenly disappeared from the scene, because um, I was working so hard trying to get my business going, and and I felt like if if I disappeared, you know, what are my clients going to say? Are they going to like crucify me or, or you know? But then nothing happened at all. It all went smoothly. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually, it's funny. I don't know if you caught this in my book, actually, but we had that conversation about how how you you've done that, where you trade accommodation for building a website for for a resort or what have you. And it's it's funny. I actually put that in the book as like one thing you can do. And it was 100% based on my conversation with you about that. So props to you for that. I don't know if you caught that, but. 
Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it was. I, I was suspecting whether you inserted anything I told you in there, because but I know that we, what you've written in the book kind of mirrors my own journey a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a pretty common journey for a lot of people, and that's why I wanted to write the book. Absolutely. So, Grant, let me ask you, what do you think we're afraid of, do you think? What, what's, what holds people back? Uh, I'd say you could put it all in a nutshell of fear of failure, actually. Um, yeah, another thing I wrote in the book, which I thought was just, it blew my mind when he said it, is that a friend of mine who's, um, he's back in the States and he's uh, doing really well in his own business that he started, but he's also still working for GE. And, you know, he's doing well in both, and he actually wants to do the whole travel the world type thing, and he's making, like, way more than he needs to do that, but he still keeps on to his job at GE, which he doesn't really like. He doesn't hate it enough to make him quit, but, um, like, he would much rather be doing kind of what you and I are doing. And so when when he told me that, and it's like, um, when he speaks enviously of this kind of thing, the question is just really obvious, like, well, why aren't you doing it? And um, I asked him that, and he basically said, well, what if I fail? And I'm like, well, you've got so much um, runway based on how you're currently doing that, like, that's not even really that uh, big of – it's not that realistic of a fear. But I think that's the fear, right? It's like, what if I fail? What if something bad happens? But it's very much a ambiguous kind of fear. I think most people, they're afraid of that general kind of failure or, like, that worst-case scenario, but uh, they haven't really – figured out what that means or how realistic that is. Because I think a lot of people, if they actually take the time to really assess their situation and what they're afraid of, it's normally not that realistic a fear. And like for him, for example, um, like the way his, his business is doing, like his worst case scenario is just like he probably would run out of money in a year or something like that. <laughs> like it's not even really that wor- uh, really worth avoiding that that risk, right? Because in a year, you can figure out something else to be doing. So uh, for him, it, it was just, uh, and for a lot of people, it's just, it's just not really clarifying that general sense of failure or insecurity or, um, you know, people are afraid of the dark. Like it's doing this is, it's uh, jumping off of the traditional script and not, not knowing what will happen because there are a lot of books about it and there are a lot of blogs about it, but it's still something where, you know, people are also a fear, fear of, um, of things that are ambiguous, things that they don't know what will happen. And this is one of those situations where if you pick up and you move to Asia or Mexico or wherever, you're not really sure what's going to happen. And so that, that makes it scary for a lot of people, I think. Okay, so we have all these irrational fears, and we don't really even know why we have them, right? We don't understand where they come from, or we haven't defined them. They're very, basically very abstract, is what you're saying. Yes, I believe that. You know, I, as you were talking, I was reminded by something I read by Tony Robbins in the book Awaken the Giant Within. Um, where he says, you know, people make these excuses where they say, oh, I have to do this, or I have to work, I have to go to this 9-to-5 job, I have to, you know, make money so I can have nice clothes or buy a home. And he says in the book, you know, you don't have to do anything. You can pack up and move to the Bahamas if you want. Um, but why do we feel like, is this, is this some kind of social conditioning that's imbued, like in your friend, for example? Like, does he feel that he has to... He has certain responsibilities that are keeping him from doing what he wants in life. Where would you say that comes from? Well, I think there's definitely a social aspect of it. I mean, even people who are fortunate, fortunate enough to come from generally supportive families and, and friend groups, you know, even, even everybody will, will face some form of judgment. Um, maybe there's another issue, which is that 
Um, another common thread about people talking about this kind of thing is that they see it as a massive risk. And that reminds me of, I'm, it's like, there's some good quote that I, I wish I could, uh, like, say uh, verbatim right now, but something about Richard Branson and about how, like, he's taken all these massive risks, but he's actually not into taking massive risks, but very, very calculated uh, large risks. But they're calculated, and it's not really that big of a risk if you uh, really flesh it out and understand what the risk is, what the reward is, and whether it's worth doing. So that's the way I see it, is that, um, yeah, this is a riskier route, but if you plan it out and you understand the risk, the reward, um, like what happens in the case of failure, what happens in the case of success, it's actually a very uh, rational decision. And it's not just like, oh, I'm going to take off and hope for the best. And, you know, I could end up like in a Thai prison on the concrete penniless or something like that's what happens if you don't plan. But um, so I think that's another <laughs> thing is, is, is the lack of planning or um, thinking it's a risk because you haven't gone through the through the, the experiment of actually planning out um, how you would approach this kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. I love that uh, anecdote you just gave of Richard Branson. I think um, anytime you have like a big goal or you need to take a big risk, I think it helps if you break it down into small chunks, milestones, because nobody really arrives at some big success overnight. It's a daily process and it's a daily yes. grind, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I and going back to what you said about your friend, you know, worrying about running out of money. I remember Tim Ferriss saying, uh, "In case I run out of money, I can always rob." third graders for their lunch money or something there's there's always op- <laughs> there's always options right? yeah maybe that's not the best one but there's always something you can do for sure uh, yeah. and that's that's why i put the exercise of like what if everything goes wrong like you can still do something because uh, yeah like the the ambiguous nature of what if i fail if you really go through that mental exercise of like okay what really happens if you fail what does that look like and what can you do in that situation? It's a very productive exercise. And that's what I, one of the things I try to convey in my book is that, um, like, if that happened to me tomorrow, like, that's a possibility that that could happen to me tomorrow. And it's in some ways less secure because you're a traveling entrepreneur, you're self-employed, what have you. But, um, like, I, I still know I'd be okay because I've sort of gone through this exercise. I've planned it all out. And I understand the kind of risks that, I, I've, um, that I'm taking on uh, going this route. And actually, yeah, so going back to the Richard Branson thing, like, so I remember uh, if you look at what he's doing, right, like starting an airline and things like that, like it's ridiculous. And you, you look at that and you say, wow, it's a massive risk. Like how, how, can he, how can he do that? Is he just like just loves risk and doesn't care about what happens if he fails? And it's like that's what it looks like from the outside, right? That's, that's what a lot of people see when they look at this kind of lifestyle or a lot of different entrepreneurs. They just see that risk from the external perspective. But I, actually, I think that's what that, that quote or that story was about, was that he had some kind of deal where he could like, uh, like return the airplanes that he had bought or something if the airline failed. So basically, he mitigated all the risk, which is a large risk, right, of starting something big like an airline. Uh, but there's always ways to mitigate your risk. And, uh, you know, in some ways, doing this kind of alternative lifestyle is like, less risky for some things. Like, you, you actually have inherent risks in having your day job, right? Like, you could get fired tomorrow. So it's just a different set of risks. And on, in some ways, you have more control in this lifestyle. Right, right. And I think, speaking for me, I don't know if it was so much if I was afraid of the risk factor. Um, well, first of all, I really like how you, you advised giving people taking on this runway like you did uh, when you went to the Philippines for six months. But I also felt like all these attachments that I had that were holding me back, like... Um, you know, I have to do this. I have these responsibilities. Um, but I think I think changing locations kind of really unhinges that 
and helps you to gain greater perspective on what's really important and meaningful in your life, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, actually, now that I think about it, it was still, it was still kind of a um, not. Uh, I decided and didn't have to think about it much to know to take that opportunity. But even then, it was even though knowing that was what I wanted and what had been working towards, it was still not the easiest thing in the world, right? I had to let go of friend groups and my current lifestyle and, and I, like understand everything's going to change. That I had to sell all my stuff. I really liked my apartment, you know. <laughs> like I liked my furniture. I liked. My friend group, I liked my my daily schedule that I had set up there, um, and you so, do have to sort of understand that you can, you have to let those things go uh, to to make some kind of leap like that. So, what what motivated you to choose your new lifestyle over your your old one? Was there a moment when you felt like I'm done with this and I want to I want to change? Um, it was something I'd been working for for a long time. Um, and actually like the original impetus to, to choose that path overall was actually back in college for me. Um, because I, I was doing a bit of travel and <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's, it's a pretty st- typical story. It's like, I was doing a bit of travel and then I like picked up a Kindle cause I was playing around with somebody's Kindle cause I'd never like really used one before. And I was like, Oh, this is cool. And I saw like they had a, the four hour work week on it and I was just like flipping through it just to see how the Kindle worked. And I started reading it. I was like, Oh, this is really cool. And I ended up reading that and it was kind of what I was working for, thinking about trying to do without really realizing it. So then it just sort of like, um, yeah, just, it's been kind of a consistent path for me, actually, um, for a very long time. So for me, there wasn't a, like, I'm fed up with my corporate job type moment. Like, I know what there, there is with a lot of people. For me, it's something I kind of have known. I, uh, you know, I wanted to break the system from, from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, you chose a life of adventure versus a life uh, in a suit and tie. Yes. Or actually, it was going to be going to grad school and getting a PhD and being some, like an economics professor or something. Uh, and I was looking at that. I was like, that's cool. It's very socially acceptable and people will be so proud of me and blah, blah, blah. But I realized that, like, there's no way I could do that and not be bored out of my mind. And, uh, you know, once I had a taste of some travel and just like the freedom of that, I was just like, there's no way to reconcile a normal life with this type of thing that I actually want. So screw that. I'm going to go for what I actually want. <laughs> uh, Grant, you seem very confident. And in, in your book, you have a very confident tone. Was it always this way? Were there ever moments of doubt? Or uh, were you ever worried for your future? <laughs> That's funny, actually. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I, yeah, I um, definitely have not always been confident about this. I mean, it's more of... I'd, I'd say it's less confidence and more like being stubborn. Like, like I'm just going to make it work. And of course, everybody, everybody has moments of like, am I doing the right thing? Like what happens, you know, what happens if I fail? Like, even if you do the exercise of knowing how to recover, if you fail, you're still going to worry if you fail. Right. Um, but just having, having your eyes on the prize, knowing exactly what you want and, uh, as those fears and insecurities creep in, just like bringing your your focus back on on what you're working towards and where you're going towards, uh, it's really really important. But no, I was definitely not always super confident about those things. I actually like not even in, in general was super confident. I used to actually have really bad social anxiety and like be really insecure about everything. So um, yeah, actually confidence in in general is an acquired trait and. Um, yeah, it's, it's something to work towards. And I, yeah, I would do all these like visualization exercises of, uh, what I wanted out of life, how to like where I wanted to, to work towards and to try and motivate myself and, and, uh, push through fear and insecurity. And, you know, part of the thing is I, I mentioned in my book is that, um, like I didn't 
have a very secure first year of uh, being an entrepreneur. Since I was starting uh, really early and didn't have that eight years of corporate world uh, bank account cushion to work through, it was actually very, very difficult. And I was like racking up all kinds of debt and like just barely scraping by. And um, it was very, very stressful. So, um, you know, but you just got to push through and just really have it set in your mind what you want and just stubbornly pursue that. And of course, you're going to make mistakes and have to correct course um, and, and be mentally flexible about how you achieve your goal. But just really understanding what you want and going for it no matter what, I think it's really important. Yeah, so just keeping one eye fixed on the overall picture. And, and you mentioned vis- visualization exercises as well. Um, yes. So you just imagine yourself being successful and having all the things you want. You put up pictures and such. Yeah, or, yeah. I mean, for me, it's actually never, like, have a Lamborghini. Like, you know, I started to think about things like that, and I was just like, ah, it's not very motivating to me. For me, it was more, like, picturing myself traveling to, to countries I wanted to go to or, like, uh, acquiring certain skills or, like, for example, being a confident public speaker. You know, like, just things I – actually, I tended to visualize either places I wanted to go or things I wanted to be. And, for example, this lifestyle and travel sort of facilitate – who I want to be as a person, who, who I want to be as a person, the kind of person I want to, to embody. And that's another reason is that it's, I was really motivated to, to choose this path is because um, being the kind of person I want to be is really important to me. And I knew this was a better path for doing that. And for me, that's just kind of what motivates me. Maybe some for other people, it's more the, the physical, um, you know, like being filthy rich or, you know, having the Lamborghinis, but you got to choose what works for you. And that, I just kind of had to figure out what motivated me and, and stick with that and, and frame everything in terms of what I, I found inspiring personally. Yeah, I think that's great. For me, Lamborghini doesn't motivate me that much. It's just a, some steel and plastic, you know, and glass windows. Um, <laughs> exactly. But, but I think the people who are the most successful have the most compelling reasons for doing what they're doing. They're going to follow through and, and get through the hurdles. I think that's very, very important. Mm-hmm. And, and speaking for myself, I know there's some days where I feel like I'm on top of the world, and then the next day I don't want to get out of bed. You know. But it's, it's like the overall vision, I think, that, that sustains you, right? Absolutely. It's the, the bipolar uh, entrepreneur's life cycle, right? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you advise people in the book. You, you uh, present several roles for how people can get started uh, achieving financial independence. So you tell people that they can become authors, they can become uh, bloggers, develop apps, produce videos. Um, what was the role that you took on, and how did you uh, start to turn this wheel when you were in the Philippines? What was your first big breakthrough? Yeah, so actually, I mean, I'll just kind of start sort of um, more from the beginning and kind of quickly go through it, um, because this actually illustrates some points that I didn't put in the book, but like they actually made a video course that the book is based on um, that has some extra sections that the book didn't have. Um, But yeah, so one of them is, for example, um, having the wrong kind of perspective about what type of business you want to start. And that's actually how I started was... I was like, I'm going to make a startup and get investment and like uh, build this massive program for people with ADHD and totally redefine like blah, 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 and just this really grand big vision. But um, my motivation was actually to sort of start a lifestyle business. And so those are very – that's a very – 
that 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 path does not get you to that actual goal. So that was a very huge mismatch, um, and that took me actually a, a bit to realize. So I was trying to do that and build this like platform and do all this stuff that I didn't really know how to do. Teach myself how to build a website and like build a brand and all these things. And I had no idea what I was doing. But I was trying to make it work. Uh, and then, so I ended up uh, building out a video course. And it wasn't really working the way I was doing it. And I didn't know anything about what I was doing. So it was very, very difficult and taking a very long, um, very long period of time to do. And it was very slow. And so ultimately, somebody sent me a blog post or something about Udemy. And I was like, hey, cool. I might as well just put my existing video course on this platform and, you know, in the meantime, I was trying, like, all these different things, like, on the side to try and, you know, get cash flow to sort of um, sustain myself while I was trying to build this bigger thing, even though I was kind of going in the wrong direction with it. Uh, so it was very messy, and just, like, in retrospect, I made so many mistakes. Um, so anyways, I put it on Udemy, and it started making money, and very quickly was doing way better than what I had spent, like, so many months trying to do uh, on my own platform by myself, and I was like, okay, there's definitely something here. And so that kind of switched uh, my path a little bit. And actually, Udemy is really good for um, some cash flow as a lifestyle business. Uh, it's, it's very conducive to that because it's, it's very much passive income. Um, so then I was, I, mean, I was still doing lots of different things at that time. Uh, but that's kind of what I went to the Philippines. That's where I was when I went to the Philippines. And so then I tried a couple other business ideas. But then it actually what, what hit was um, you know, my courses were still doing really well. And then people started asking me how to do that. And then they were like, can I like pay you to help me launch courses on Udemy? And then I was like, okay, that's a, that's a pretty good business opportunity. So yes, you can pay me. So then I started doing marketing services and um, working with other, uh, you know, like online instructors and uh figures to to get them onto Udemy or to move their content around and basically starting to work with online course creators. And so that kind of took a new direction that um, there's a lot of lessons learned from that experience, actually, because I kind of went with the flow of what people wanted and what people were asking of me. Because before the, the very original project I created, I had a concept of what I wanted to make. And I tried to do all the market validation stuff. But in reality, like it was still my idea that I was trying to like sort of push on the market which is a much more difficult thing to do. But when I, once I started to go with what people really wanted, what people were proactively asking for, which is like support to take their courses and put them on Udemy or use Udemy for various purposes because that's something that I then knew about um, and had gotten quite good at, then everything became so much easier. <laughs> and yeah. uh, it just it made things so much more streamlined and I didn't have to like hustle anymore because it was something that was very much in demand. And you did a great thing. You played up your strengths there. You already had expertise in this area, and you created a spin-off product from that, which possibly was even more successful than your original product. Yeah. Yeah. Like a hundred times. So yes. <laughs> That's great because I had a lady um, that I consulted with, one of my clients uh, recently, and she's uh, teaching English now. She's an English teacher, but she's also written uh, several books on Amazon. And she wants to know, she didn't know what she should do next. You know, she wants to create some kind of product. And I said, well, why don't you just leverage the two things that you already have? There's a lot of people that want information about, you know, how to teach English abroad. Um, you already have experience with Amazon and Kindle. So why not create guides, you know, for each country, something like that? And um, she's like, yeah, well, I'm like, well, go do it. <laughs> <laughs> so you actually had quite a bit of success with this Udemy course that you created, uh, this ADHD course. Um, you had over 4,000 students. Um, 
what do you think made you successful in this effort versus others who create courses? I know a lot of people are creating Udemy courses, but uh, not really making a whole lot of money right now. What's the key differentiator? Yeah, so well, I think there's two um, two interesting lessons here, which is, uh, like for, for example, my lack of success before putting it on Udemy and then my success once I put it on Udemy because... Um, and this is like to illustrate the value of something like this, which is before I put it on Udemy, I was trying to do everything myself. And if you have your own course on your own website uh, with your own brand and your own blog behind it and all these different things, you have to create your own marketing funnel. You have to sustain it. You have to know how to build, do email uh, marketing, maybe Facebook retargeting, and as well as building the course and managing a community. And basically the number of hats you have to wear is kind of ridiculous unless you're really experienced. It's, it's a very difficult thing to do, especially because I was doing it as kind of a solopreneur. So it was really just too much, and I could have gotten there. It just would have taken so long for me to do that. Um, and that's something I realize now in retrospect. So that was the the value and sort of the transition point there is that all of a sudden, that's one of the things, it's the value proposition of Udemy is that they take care of a lot of that for you. You don't have to manage the people as much. A lot of the marketing is taken care of for you um, in the sense that it's a marketplace. So similar to Amazon eBooks, you know, you'll have people organically buying your stuff, which just takes a lot of the responsibility off of you. So that's one key lesson, right? Is like understand the, the scope of your project and like if it's something you can handle with your current expertise. And that's one of the things I try and talk about in the book because that was a huge mistake I made in the very beginning. Uh, and the second lesson, which is, you know, why was I successful or why am I successful, whereas a lot of people aren't on Udemy? That's. A little bit of a tricky question to answer very succinctly, but um, I'll, I'll just kind of say some of the common mistakes people do make, because I've worked with like dozens of instructors now, um, and that's one, uh, uh, not understanding how Udemy works as a platform, so it's actually very different than self-hosting your courses or other similar platforms. It works in a, in a pretty unique way in terms of uh, the way you have to launch your courses, understanding how to optimize your courses for the marketplace, understanding the types of people that are buying courses and the types of courses that are successful. So you really got to understand uh, Udemy as a platform to be successful at it. And there's also lots of, you know, just random tricks and things that people don't understand until they just play around with it for a very long time. And another major mistake people make is kind of similar to what I did with my very first project, right? I wanted to make something. So I was like, okay, what, what do I want to make for the world? And I started to make it and put it out there. And that's not a very good way to make a product, right? It's much better to look at what's successful in the market and align that with your current knowledge and strengths or maybe do something in reverse where you have people ask you for a product and then you create it. Uh, so the way that uh, relates to Udemy is, for example, that product that I originally made and then put on Udemy, it actually did not become successful until I transitioned the the target of, of the course uh, to something that was more aligned with the audience on Udemy. So, for example, it, it was originally pitched as like, okay, if you have ADHD, here's a really awesome course to help you uh, just like live life better. And um, it's something that's alternative to just, you know, handing you a prescription for Adderall and it'll just make your life better and in all these different ways. And it works for that. But if you put that on Udemy, it's a very small part of the overall market. So one of the things I did and I quickly figured out is that I changed the sales message and the pitch of the course to be more along the lines of um, maybe not people who are strictly ADHD, like they're 
they're diagnosed, they have that I, that label as part of their self identity, but they're they kind of have that personality type, and they just want to be more productive in general. So it sort of widens the appeal of the course, and it was also something that was more appealing to that audience as a whole because it's also there's a lot of entrepreneurs on that on Udemy, and there's also a lot of people. Um, like a lot of people in general who are kind of ADHD-like nowadays, but they don't identify as ADHD. So then all of a sudden they're interested in the course and they were buying it, whereas they wouldn't before given that sales message. So that's a very important thing is to look at the the types of messages, um, the types of positioning of the course that really sell well and trying to align your course with that. Because the, it was the same content actually for both things, but the right. second one sold infinitely better. And it's because you kind of position it towards professionals. I'm looking at your sales page, and you say, uh, you know, are you sick of the frustration of not being able to productively focus? You, you put in yeah. productive focus in there, and you say, uh, you know, how do people still manage to become successful lawyers, doctors, entrepreneurs? So you're focusing those towards a professional crowd, your, your sales copy, basically. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the types of people who would identify with the sales copy now is much different than what it, than what it was before. So... That makes it much more appealing. If, assuming that there are people who um, they're more of the second category of people who are, who now identify with it, then it's going to sell better. And the cool part is actually the content itself works for both messages, right? It works for people who are who um, are officially diagnosed with ADHD and want it for that reason, and it also works for people who are you know kind of distractible uh, entrepreneur types or, or lawyers or doctors, whatever. But they just want to be really effective despite that kind of personality. So it works both ways. You just got to understand the sort of messaging that's going to resonate with people, and that can really sort of make or break your course. Okay, so some of the takeaways I'm taking from this as well are um, it can just be little small things or little tweaks that separate people who are successful creating products, books, Udemy courses versus people who are not. You know, and it could just be like doing a little research, seeing what people are actually interested, what they're buying, and then tailoring the message so that it, it seems irresistible to them. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's interesting is that, yeah, it, on the surface, it actually seems like a very small change. And it's actually really, really quick to do, right? You don't have to refilm the course at all. But it's actually a, a very fundamental thing is who's your target market? What, what's your ideal customer? How are you reaching them? Like it's a very fundamental aspect of your business model. So it's very, very, very important, even though it's probably one of the quickest things that you can test or change. So that's actually one of the reasons why you should everybody should focus on that kind of thing because it's so... Um, so easy to to optimize for, but it's also so important. Okay, so another big part of the game that I want to ask you about here is pricing. Uh, because Udemy, just like a lot of other platforms, uh, has kind of a freemium model. And in your book, you talk about selling ebooks for $200 or $400 when you discuss your Freedom app and what it takes, how many ebooks you have to sell to reach your Freedom number. Um, I see that you're selling your course for $297. How do we earn these premium prices when a lot of people are just giving their content away for free? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, there's, I guess there's a couple ways I can answer that. One, I mean, you could you could make the argument that basically every course or every uh, premium product you'll ever buy, it all contains information that inevitably you can probably find uh, elsewhere for free on the internet. But it would take you so long, and uh, you'd have to piece it together from like. You know, like everything's free on the internet, essentially. Like every information you can probably find somewhere, but it's putting it all together in a very cohesive way, taking out all the distracting crap, and making it very, very actionable and, and useful. And so that's one of the main values of you know things like eBooks 
and, and online courses is, um, yeah, you can go search around YouTube videos, but like at the end of the day, you're going to spend eight hours to get like the same five minutes of con of, of very discreet, clear content that you put together in some kind of premium course. Um, so that's one thing that comes to mind. But, um, and another, another thing is just how Udemy's pricing model works. So naturally, <coughs> excuse me, naturally, Given the fact that their their marketing revolves around discounting, so that affects the way you price the course. So, for example, it's actually difficult for courses um, to sell at their full price. They don't normally do that, um, no matter what their pricing is. So, the way I actually see my perspective on pricing for Udemy specifically, this is only really applies to Udemy because of the way the platform functions. Pricing is more reflective of like the stated value of the course. And that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to sell it at that price point because Udemy very frequently does site-wide discounts for a uh, standardized price. So it might be $10, $50, but every course will be that same price, right? So you'll get um, a $50 course for $20. You'll get a $300 course for $20. So the price that you're putting for it is more of like a statement of value based on the quality of the content the how demand how much in demand the content is, the quality of the filming is it live filming is it screencasting things like that how long it is how how in depth it is the types of reviews you have, um, but at the end of the day it's actually the effect of of your earnings and the way it sells yeah you'll you'll average a higher price point but you're not consistently selling at three hundred dollars or four hundred dollars or five hundred dollars you'll just more often sell more of the fifty dollars or twenty dollar price points that. Udemy will discount your course for, if that makes sense. Does that actually does that make sense? Yeah, I see. And I think the the high price also um, increases the perceived value of the course, obviously, and it gives you more negotiating room. Would you say to discount? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, people will be upset if you have a really crappy short course and you put it for five hundred dollars, of course. But um, if you can legitimately legitimately claim that you have a course that in sort of a normal situation, you can sell for $300, for example. Like that ADHD course, if I did go ahead and build out my platform and my audience and such, um, I could sell it at that price point. I have sold it at that price point. But again, the nature of Udemy is that you can have access to lots of different courses and kind of at a cheaper price. So it's more of a um, quantity versus price point difference. And it's also a motivating factor for them to buy the course if they feel they can get a $300 course at $30, for instance. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. That, that's one of the ways I consult people when, for example, when they, they freelance through something like Odesk, for example. So, so what I tell people with, with Odesk, for example, is if you're freelancing and you can set your price, you can set it at $20 an hour or you can set it at $100 an hour. Um, but just because you set it at $100 an hour doesn't mean that you have to charge people that. You can also negotiate and give them a better rate. Uh, but how are they going to feel if they get $100 an hour? Uh, okay, <laughs> one second. <laughs> All right. <laughs> it's a good point. Keep reading it. <laughs> and that was a good point I was making, but hold on. All right. No, no, I, I know what, I know where you're going with this. That's a good, good stuff. Yeah. So, how would someone feel if they get a hundred dollar an hour freelancer at fifty dollars an hour, or a twenty dollar per hour freelancer at you know twenty dollars an hour or whatever? Um, they're gonna feel like you know, hey, I got a great deal on this guy, and I'm super excited to work with them, and you're probably gonna get better quality clients at the same time. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's basic negotiation skills. Like there's there's books written about this. It's it's bracketing. If you have a target price you're trying to sell at, you're going to pitch them originally on something much higher. So that way they bring it down, and then they feel good because they've they think they're getting or like they they bring it down, and um, it's not the original price that they see, but it's also what what you're going for at the end of the day. So yeah, absolutely. It's it's a key part of uh, of sales negotiation, all that. Yeah, I think it's great. I think it's one of the hacks that you can use here because a lot of people are looking through the wrong end of the spectrum. You know, they're they're pricing their services and products at the bare minimum, you know, thinking that they're going to work their way up. But I think that that way actually takes a lot longer, and they get frustrated, and they don't make very much money. So. Yeah, and having worked with uh, clients for like a service business, for example, uh, it's actually. If you talk to anybody who owns a service business or who's run one in the past, they all kind of say the same thing. And I've kind of, you know, like I've lived through this as well. And it's very, very true. And it's a very consistent lesson everybody learns when they have a service business, which is you want to price for the types of clients you want to have. And you don't want to price at the low end because the types of people you'll get at the low end of the pricing model will be the biggest headache Always, like always, 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 always. Um, if you're going to coach somebody for $50 a month versus somebody for $800 a month, the person at $800 a month is not only like paying you $800 a month, but they're also much a better person to associate with. They'll complain less. They'll be really happy with what you provide. Um, and it's just really interesting how it works that way. But it's the type of people you want to associate with. And it's um, putting that value proposition on yourself and that statement out there that like, no, I'm not the bare minimum. I want to work with the the high rollers. I, I want to do that kind of thing. And then just doing the, your best to to do that. And I mean, obviously, you don't want to put that statement out there and then under deliver. But it's going for that high end right out of the gate is a much better option than trying to, like you said, work your way up. I agree totally. Yeah, it's awesome. So. I'm shifting gears here a little bit. I see a common denominator that a lot of people are doing is, and what you mentioned is, going where the customers already are, uh, Udemy, Amazon, rather than trying to do everything yourself. Uh, let's say you put out your first Udemy course, you start making some money. Uh, what do you do next? How do you scale up to uh, your freedom number, as you put it? Do you just kind of cre- keep creating more products? Do you uh, start building out the website and the mailing list? I mean, what do you suggest? Yeah, well, I guess it depends on what direction you want to take. If you want to just be a person who creates lots of online courses, do you want to have ebooks as well? Do you want to how, how diversified do you want to be? And then even the the question then is like, say you just want to do online courses. Well, do you keep building out and expanding and improving the one course? When do you make your next course? How quickly do you make courses? Um, so yeah, it's going to depend on your your individual uh, approach with what resonates with you. But uh, let's see. So I guess it's kind of similar to what you did where you you added on a complimentary service to what you'd already done with your Udemy course creation, and then you became an Udemy consultant, and then you can yeah, kind of create the, spin-off products. Yeah, absolutely. So okay. if you're going to create um, new products, new services, um, if there's, you always want to connect them all together. Even, uh, for example, some of my, my the topics of my courses aren't super related, but they all kind of, um, if I draw a diagram of... For example, the flow of people uh, between like my ebooks and my online courses and my YouTube channel, et cetera, et cetera. Like it all kinds of, kind of goes together um, in a web of uh, branding or, or traffic or, or what have you. Um, and so it's very important to do that. And that's one of the the things that's really important to keep in mind. For example, if you're going to make 
multiple ebooks or multiple courses um, is that, for example, you can make a, and this is one of the things I'm still working on actually, is uh, you can make an overall course on, for example, becoming a digital nomad, which touches on different topics about how to do that. And then you can create other courses, which are lead on courses for like, okay, so you've got like these 10 options. Um, for each of these 10 options, I have a follow-on course for exactly how to do that. Um, and so you can just have all of these courses feed into each other. And so that way you have a nice flow of traffic and, and customers and people that follow you. And again, it's the whole uh, thousand true fans model. Uh, it's, it's really important to incorporate that, especially if you're doing information products. Awesome. So I'm just looking through your book again, and um, I think we've covered a lot of stuff here. So you have criteria for starting the business. One, you say your timeline where you reflect on your goals, uh, short and long term. Um, Two, you say start earning money, um, performing the service or with the product as soon as you can, before you put up the website, uh, all that jazz. Um, how important would you say that is? Yeah, I, I think the yeah. overall concise way of putting that is to focus on cash flow before building assets. So, again, one of the mistakes I made in the beginning was like, okay, I'm going to try and uh, build this brand and figure out how to build a website and figure out how to do like build a blog and email marketing and build out autoresponders and all this stuff. Um, and that's a really massive asset which pays off uh, considerably over time, but it also takes a lot of time to set up. So um, yeah, so it's really important to take that first step to to get that initial cash flow so that you're not uh, just like dwindling your savings to try and uh, go as fast as possible to get as far as possible to to build the asset enough so that it starts paying off. So, and rather than that, if you can get enough cash flow right out of the gate, um, for example, if you're trying to build an online course on a topic, well, guess what? You can consult on that topic to provide the cash flow to sustain your building of that product, and that's really really important because that way you can ideally have an indefinite timeline and you're not constrained to okay, I've got six months of savings. If that runs out, then I'll be bankrupt and have to move back home with my parents. That's just like not the ideal approach because inevitably when you're planning out how much time something's going to take, it always takes so much longer every single time. And so if you create that cash flow right out of the gate, then uh, it extends your timeline and it takes off that pressure so that you can build things the right way and you don't have to just hustle and uh, potentially fail and run out of money and, and, you know, again, move back home with your parents. Nobody wants to do that. Yeah, I remember there was a book, um, I think it was called Stock Traders, or it was about stock trading where all the smartest people, all the smartest stock, stock traders lost all of their money uh, because they, they were so sure of what they were investing in, even as it was crashing. Everyone else said, you know, look, the market's not doing this, uh, we need to change and invest in something else. But they were so certain that what they were doing was going to work, and then they just kept doing it until they basically ran out of all their money. So the third step in your process is... The, the question of location or financial independence um, and whether you value time or money freedom more. And you mentioned different types of businesses in your book, um, such as product businesses, service businesses, uh, freelancing. So what's the balance that you recommend to people so that they can have uh, both location and financial independence? So you can absolutely have financial and uh, geographical freedom. And the, the main thing is just to, to take, a, take stock of what you really want. So if you're going to transition from working for like GE, for example, to, to starting your own your business for the first time, you want to take stock of what, like why are you doing that? 
what do you want to accomplish and over what timeline do you want to accomplish that on? Because, for example, uh, you can quickly do certain things uh, a lot more quickly than you can do other things. And what I mean by that is that if you become self-employed, there's a lot of ways to become self-employed that will tie you to a location. There's a lot of ways that it will that you'll be freed up in terms of your location. But then there's a lot of other ways where you can be freed up in terms of your time and your location. And so some examples of that would be you know a brick-and-mortar business. So yeah, you're self-employed. So you've accomplished the goal of being self-employed, but you're tied pretty much to a physical location. And then you've got like a freelancing model where you're freelancing, you're putting in your hours, you're getting you're getting your return. Uh, and so then you're probably uh, freed up to travel where you want and you have uh, location independence, but you do not have uh, freedom of time and, and financial independence because then you're putting in the hours and you get the, that direct return. So if you stop working, you stop getting your cash flow. So it's a different level of, of uh, freedom. And then you've got the whole uh, other situation, which is, for example, you build up assets like ebooks and uh, physical product businesses that are very automated and systematized, uh, different things like that, like very well set up businesses that kind of run automatically. And that's the, the best case scenario, right? Because then you're generating that income you can live wherever you want, and you also have the freedom of time as well. So those are kinds of the, the kind of the different situations. And so the main thing is to think about where are you starting with? Do you have lots of savings you can go off of, and you want to go straight to the end, the best business model? Um, again, you don't want to totally run off your savings, but um, it, it's worth understanding that okay, yes, you're really well established. You have massive skill sets that can allow you to quickly build a really substantial business, and you have the savings to do it. Or you're a kid right out of college, you have very limited skill sets, and you're going to kind of start on a different level. So it's just taking stock of those things and starting at the level that's appropriate for you in terms of where you're, you're at financially in terms of your skills and also where your goals are. Because some people, they want to be self-employed, but they don't care as much about the travel. Or some people um, are really content with the freelancing model. There's a lot of people who've been doing that for you know years or decades, and they travel around, they're freelance writers or bloggers, marketers, what have you, and that, that works for them because that's what they want. And um, in some ways, like there, there are advantages to that. It's just a different kind of uh, pros and cons list. Right. I really like this example that you gave of these travel businesses. This one girl who sells salt and sugar commodities to restaurants back home. So yeah. like she literally, and, and she finds other products like that, you know, where she can find it for cheap and she just ships them back home. I mean, that's simple and beautiful. Um, I, I think I heard of a Norwegian guy today who has been traveling around the world on a, a ship called Chaos, and he chops coconuts on tropical islands and sells them. <laughs> things using That's that. crazy. <laughs> yeah. I don't know his name, but someone was telling me about that. Um, there was one resource that I wanted to ask you about. It, you give advice for how people can start earning money right away, and you give a bunch of resources in there uh, in Chapter 8 of your book. Uh, what I want to ask you about is this one called SoHelpful.me. Uh, yes. What is that? And can you tell me um, how you implemented this into your consulting service to uh, get paying clients? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and first off, I just want to say, uh, yeah, Natalie, she's awesome. And I actually just posted a, a video interview with her on my I, yeah, my YouTube channel, if, if people Google my name on that. Um, What's yeah, your full name, really... Grant? <clears throat> uh, so her, her name is Natalie J. Okay. And it's spelled like how you think it would be. 
Um, yeah, it's, I have a, it's about a 30 minute interview with her and she, she's really, really nice. She's, she's a really cool person. And, and like her story is really interesting because it's just like, yeah, going around and doing different things. I talked to a lumber supplier person and was like, Hey, I'm going to sell lumber to Russia <laughs> and then I'm going to sell like salt and sugar to, to businesses also in Russia and the world. And I was asking her, like, do, did you already know how to do that? Like, I mean, wh- why did you? is a great opportunity for you she's like nope it's an opportunity and i just taught myself how to do it and um it's a really good lesson and like seizing opportunities and and recognizing them and just um you know hitting the ground running so uh it's a pretty cool interview if people want to check that out um and yeah so your question about so helpful.me well actually first off if people want to like check out specifically how i use it if they go to so helpful.me slash grant worley if you can figure out how to spell my name, uh, they can see my profile for it. And basically, it's a tool that allows people to schedule calls with you. Uh, it's a scheduling tool, but it also collects testimonials in a really neat way. And so when people uh, sign up to, to schedule a call with you, they see this long list of testimonials that make you look like a badass, right? And so from there, it's it's really, really easy to uh, build yourself up as an and really get started with consulting, coaching, and, and things like that. And it's a really great funnel, right? Because um, you're giving somebody 30 minutes of your time. And if you do a really great call with somebody for 30 minutes on some kind of topic that they're interested in having you coach them on and you give them a really good 30 minutes, then uh, the conversion rate from that is ridiculously great. So when I was doing that for um, done-for-you marketing services for Udemy and people would sign up for those calls and I would just have a quick 30-minute conversation with them and I would just sort of you know be as so helpful as possible, uh, they would, one, provide a great testimonial and then, two, they would, like, the vast majority of the people would then become clients. And if they, even if they didn't, it still creates that testimonial for me, that contact. And then oftentimes they would, even if they didn't sign up, they'd prefer other people. And it's this really nice uh, natural organic marketing and networking that pays off immensely over time. And that's just one of many tools, but it's the one that I use. And it's, it's like $7 a month or something, and it works really well. Awesome. Well, guys, go check that out. It's uh, sohelpful.me. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Uh, a bunch of different ideas for uh, consulting services that you can offer on that website as well. How's the background noise, Grant? I have a beeper here. Actually, I can't hear anything. Okay, okay. I'm going to have to do a little bit of editing after this anyway. Um, uh, yeah, and so also go check out Grant's book, Break the System, uh, now available on Amazon for a bunch of other resources. Uh, I'm sure you're definitely going to get a lot out of it. I got quite a few things out of it myself. And uh, I just want to ask you, Grant, what's next for you? You're doing a whole lot of stuff uh, here, modeling, consulting, writing books. Uh, where, where are you taking things now? <laughs> um, <laughs> I did make a course on ADHD, so I'm kind of all over the place. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, so, I, I, you know, I, I always i am juggling lots of different projects, right? I've started uh, partnering with people to make more Udemy courses so I can, I can do them quicker. Um, again, trying to, like, create a really tight network of everything that I've done and really tighten up the the flow for for different things. Uh, But I guess one of the biggest things I'm trying to do is like create my centralized website and brand um, that's, that's independent of all these different platforms like Udemy and Amazon. So that's, uh, I want to build a very established brand um, that doesn't, that's not reliant on, for example, another company's marketing because that's great when it works, right? When Udemy's marketing my course and making me money, and I don't have to do anything. That's awesome. But at the end of the day, I'm kind of reliant on them to do that. So I want to um, kind of go back in the original direction I was going to win when I didn't have the skills to do and build my own platform, my own, my own brand and yeah, and go from there. And I, I don't know, <laughs> we'll see where I go from there, I guess. 
Awesome. I think that's great advice too. You know, you just kind of get yourself out there, um, get people interacting with your products, and then kind of build your brand so they, they get more products and services from you in the future. I think that's a great idea. Absolutely. Great and and actually, one of the things I've realized from doing so many different things, um, I'm a big fan of trying things and seeing what works and seeing what works for you personally. Um, and so I realized when I was doing the service business, I actually hated it and very quickly stopped doing it just because it wasn't something I enjoyed doing. But I really, really enjoy having these calls with people. Um, so, like, for example, the calls I had to sign up clients to do the, the marketing services for them, um, I enjoyed the calls, but then I actually hated doing the services once they were clients. So then I realized, you know, hey, like, I can still do consulting and things like that. I love writing books and making video courses. So trying all those different things has sort of helped refine uh, what I'm best at, what I like to do, and what direction is best for me. Awesome. Well, I really enjoyed this call, uh, Grant. Thank you so much for your time and coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, thanks for having me on. There was a lot of great stuff during this interview, and I uh, hope you, the listener, took a lot from it as well. All right, so, so take care, Grant, and hope you have a good night.